Here's what happened in sports jersey history for February 1st. Some former stars garner executive roles in their respective sports. A Negro League legend is elected in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and a young lady in high school sets a scoring record. Listen to hear more about these stories of straight sports history and more from the uniforms and jerseys the players wore, all coming up in just a moment. My name's Darren Hayes, and I know you've heard me on the Pigskin Dispatch talking about football history for years. Well, now I'm on a new mission, a quest to find sports history in other sports as well as football by learning through the jerseys and the apparel and the gear that the players wore and the franchises supplied their teams. It's an educational trip, and I'm taking you with me day by day, player by player, uniform by uniform, the Sports Jersey Dispatch. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, everyone. How are we doing today? This is Darren Hayes of the Sports Jersey Dispatch. How about we remember some history today from February 1st? And we're going to start off in the year 1913 on the day. Perhaps the most prominent world all-around athlete was American Jim Thorpe. And he signed to play baseball with the New York Giants. He had just won gold at the 1912 Olympics in Sweden. Then one year to the day later, February 1st, 1914, in an exhibition baseball game in Cairo, Egypt, the Chicago White Sox and the New York Giants played a 10-inning 3-3 tie in an exhibition Major League Baseball game as part of a special 56-game world tour for the clubs. February 1st, 1919, the National League's Brooklyn Robins franchise traded former National League MVP Jake Daubert to the Cincinnati Reds for outfielder Tommy Griffith as a result of a salary grievance. February 1st, 1950, the Green Bay Packers founder, player, and coach Curly Lambeau resigns after 31 seasons and six NFL titles to his credit. February 1st, 1955, Hap Day becomes the first man to serve as the Toronto Maple Leafs captain, coach, and general manager when Day is appointed to run the famous Canadian NHL club. Day wore number four during his days with the Maple Leafs tenure on the ice as a player. And then he, all of a sudden he went and became the coach and then later the general manager on February 1st, 1955. February 1st, 1959, outfielder Zach Wheat, another Brooklyn Robins favorite of the club from 1909 to 1927, was selected to become inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Wheat hit 317 over a 19-year career and batted 300 or better in an amazing 14 times during the span of his career. Now, how about that? How many times do you hear about the Brooklyn Robins, you know, a, a club that hasn't been around for over a half a century or more, and now we have two instances on February 1st where we're talking about them. February 1st, 1962, the National League of Baseball released its first ever 162-game schedule. The increase of games was due to the growth with the addition of the New York Mets and the Houston Colt 45s. February 1st, 1967, the 10-team American Basketball Association, or ABA, with George Mikan as commissioner, is formed 
and last nine years. Its three-point shot remains a feature of the game. And Mikan, who started with the Minneapolis Lakers from 1948 to 1956, wore number 99 during his playing days. And make sure you check out Rick Loiza and Basketball History 101's podcast on the Sports History Network, where he has multiple episodes with stories about George Mikan, including a couple times where Mikan and the Minneapolis Lakers that he played for played the Harlem Globetrotters. Can you imagine that matchup? Great stories. Uh, make sure you check out Rick's podcast. I think you'll really enjoy that. And I highly recommend both episodes with the uh, Lakers and the Globetrotters. Very good storytelling by Rick. February 1st, 1968, the Green Bay Packers head coach Vince Lombardi stepped down from his position with the franchise and longtime Packer assistant Phil Bankston took over as the club's general manager for the 1968 season. Now, how would you like to have that day if you're a Packers fan? You know, you have uh, Vince Lombardi stepped down in 1968 on that day, and earlier in 1950, the Packers founder and their longtime coach and player, Curly Lambeau, stepped So 18 years apart, Lambeau and Lombardi both stepped down on the first day from the Green Bay Packers positions that uh, they were at. February 1st, 1970, longtime New York Rangers goalie Terry Sawchuk recorded his 447th and final win between the pipes and his 103rd career shutout. Both were NHL records at the time. And as his New York team blanked the Pittsburgh Penguins 6-0, the highly decorated goaltender wore number 99 on the ice. February 1st, 1973, outfielders Monty Irvin is selected to go into the Baseball Hall of Fame with a special committee on the Negro Leagues. Though he wore number 20 for much of his career with the New York Giants, historian Larry Lester has researched Irvin wore numbers 6, 16, and 8 in the Negro Leagues. He also wore number 7 in his initial year with the Giants roster and 39 later with the Chicago Cubs. Mr. Irvin is the fourth inductee to go through the uh, into the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame through the special committee. And you can find more on uh, historian Larry Lester's research on the Negro League players in an interview on Sports Jersey Dispatch about his great book, and it airs today. So as soon as you get done with this episode, check it out. We have another release. It's a Larry Lester's interview on his great book, The Negro Leagues, that he co-wrote uh, with Mr. Uh, Shivers. February 1st, 1992, the Pittsburgh Pirates outfielder Barry Bonds signed the highest single-year contract in MLB history at $4.7 million with the franchise. And who says the Pirates don't spend on a player? The slugger wore number 24 for six of his seven seasons with the Pirates and then spent 15 years with later in his career wearing number 25 with the San Francisco Giants. February 1st, 1992, well, defenseman Dennis Potvin became the first player in New York Island's history to have his number retired by the club. Potvin, who wore number five, played his entire 15-year NHL career in the big city of New York. February 1st, 1995, at the Delta Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Jazz number 12 guard John Stockton passed Magic Johnson's all-time NBA assist mark of 9,221. He did it in a 129-98 victory over Denver Nuggets. Stockton played with the Jazz from 1984 all the way through 2003. February 1st, 1997, future Hall of Fame defenseman 
Uh, Ray Bork records a goal and an assist to become the Boston Bruins' all-time leading scorer with 1,341 points in an 18-year NHL career. He wore number 77 for the majority of his hockey career, but was also known as number 7 in your programs for the first 11 seasons of his eventual 23 total seasons playing in the league. February 1st, 2004 at Reliant Stadium in Houston, Texas. What a game. Super Bowl 38 was to match the league's top two teams, the Carolina Panthers and the New England Patriots. New England Patriots edged the Panthers 32-29 in a thriller. The big game's most valuable player was number 12, quarterback Tom Brady, who set a Super Bowl record for the most pass completions with 32. And speaking of Brady and the Patriots, TB12 captured another Super Bowl MVP honor on this date in 2015, exactly 11 years later at the University of Phoenix Stadium in Glendale, Arizona. Yes, it was Super Bowl 49 and saw the Patriots denied the Seattle Seahawks another Lombardi as they held on to win by the score of 28-24 with a late interception at the goal line. February 1st, 2006, High school senior Epiphany Prince scored a United States Girls National Prep Basketball record 113 points in Murray Burtgom's High School's 137-32 victory over Brandis High School. In doing that, she surpassed Cheryl Miller's 105 from a few years earlier. February 1st, 2009, the Arizona Cardinals and the Pittsburgh Steelers butted heads in what would be Super Bowl 43. A remarkable end of the first half with a 100-yard pick six by number 92, James Harrison, and some late offensive heroics by number seven quarterback Ben Roethlisberger hooking up with the game most valuable player, number 10, Antonio Holmes, on a toe-tap touchdown and allowed the Steelers to prevail 27-23. to Had some great Super Bowls on this day. February 1st, 2014, Denver Broncos quarterback Peyton Manning, who wore number 18 during his career, becomes the all-time record holder for most valuable player trophies, winning his fifth at the NFL Honors in New York, and also he was the 2013 Offensive Player of the Year that season. And we have one last football note, February 1st, uh, 2014, number eight Ray Guy, who played for the Oakland and Los Angeles Raiders, became just the second kicker-only player and the first pure punter to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You can catch all of those stories, a little bit more on each of them, over on our sister station, Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and uh, the pigskindispatch.com website for February 1st. Make sure you check those out. Now, I've got some uh, great uh, takes on some uniform history from one of my friends. Sure. I'm Larry, and I currently reside in the Litchfield Hills in Northwest Connecticut. I'm originally a New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn, and I was a third-generation New York Giants season ticket holder. My grandfather first got the tickets when the Giants played at um, Old Yankee Stadium um, in the, I believe it was 1961. And my grandfather passed the tickets to my father, and then my father passed them on to me. And, you know, I grew up going to Giants games in Giants Stadium. Uh, You know, I'm from the era of, uh, you know, Phil Simms and Lawrence Taylor. And um, football has always been my favorite sport. I've always been very passionate about it. And, you know, I've always, even at a very young age, you know, I love football history. And I think a a lot of my passion from that comes from 
going to the games with my father, you know, when I started going to the games in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, the Giants weren't very good. And we'd go early with my sisters and my father and I would be tailgating. And my father would tell my sisters and I, you know, stories about how the Giants used to be so good. They would be in the NFL championship game every year and YA Tittle and Frank Gifford. My father's favorite player was Sam Huff. And he'd talk about Sam Huff and Jim Brown or Sam Huff and Jim Taylor. So I've always loved football history. And I still remember, I still have the very first um, history book I got for Christmas when I was 12 years old. And one of the things that I, you know, aside from reading the stories and the names and the players and the statistics, I love the pictures, the black and white pictures and looking at the team's uniforms. And it's something that always grabbed my attention. And I always thought it was fascinating how I, I could look at a photograph from the 1950s, black and white grainy. And I know right away, hey, that's the Chicago Bears, you know, dark jerseys with the three stripes on the sleeves and I, I just always thought that was great. And um, I used to doodle and draw pictures of my favorite football players. And um, so I remember as a reader of UniWatch, um, the first, it was a weekend. I don't remember if it was a Saturday or a Sunday. Uh, you know, Paul Lucas wrote, there's this new website, um, the Gridiron Uniform Database, and they linked it. And I went to it. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. You know, like Tim was saying earlier, you know, there had never been a database, you know, documenting football uniform history before. And I spent the whole, probably the whole day, like clicking on everything and looking at the uniforms. Oh yeah, and this is great. I'm hey, showing my wife, look at this, this is unbelievable. And she's like rolling her eyes. Oh yeah, that's real interesting, you know? But, <laughs> you know, I loved it. And, you know, being passionate and possibly borderline obsessive, you know, they had a little contact us thing. And I started sending Bill and Tim emails like, you know, hey, look what I found. I have this picture of this and it's not quite exactly what you guys have. And basically, um, over time, I was probably just a pain in the ass that wouldn't go away. So they put me to work and I've become uh, like Bill's uh, one of his uh, research specialists. You know, when he needs something, he's like, hey, Larry, can you look this up? Can you help me with this or dig up some photos on this? So that's how I got involved. Yeah, I want to thank uh, Larry Schmidt for that uh, great segue on how he got involved with the Gridiron Uniform Database. That came from an interview that I had uh, just uh, not too long ago with uh, Bill Schaefer and Tim Brulia and Larry Schmidt, all of the Gridiron Uniform Database. And uh, those guys just shared some great things on uh, football uniform history. And we're going to show you some little tidbits and let you listen to some of that. We're going to have the uh, the main part of the interview is going to be airing on Pigskin Dispatch probably later this week or next Next week, uh, you can hear some more of those three. Uh, just a great talk we had uh, one weekend afternoon and just had a, a great time. And I wanted to share that with you because they are full of great uniform history. You've heard Larry come on here before when in our football by numbers on Pixie and Dispatch. Uh, he's talked about a couple of uh, Giants players that uh, were real special to him during that. And we're going to have some more from him in these interviews too here on the uh, Sports Jersey Dispatch. So we thank Larry and uh, all the, the fellas from uh, Grid uniform database for their support and helping us uh, bring sports history and helping us to preserve that and uh, we also have some other folks to thank uh, we want to thank uh, gene and mike monroe for the uh, great music that they had at the beginning with that, that reggae uh, beat that you had at the opening credits also jason neff the music you hear right now in the background and the one you're going to hear in a moment in our end credits that's sort of by jason neff very talented musicians all of them and we thank them for their their contributions and letting and sharing their music 
music with us to uh, play. Also want to thank uh, for researching newspapers.com, onthisday.com, and the sports reference uh, family of hockey, baseball, pro football, and basketball. Uh, also, their stat head site is just tremendous. I highly recommend all of those. And until uh, tomorrow, everybody, have a great sports history day. We're dribbling around and see the shot clock's almost out, so we got to put up our shot and come back tomorrow for some more great sports history. We invite you to check out our websites, jerseydispatch.com and pigskindispatch.com. Not only see the daily sports history, but to experience the preservation of great events and people that play the games. Find us on Pigskin Dispatch. It's also on social media outlets of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all your daily sports history. Pigskin Dispatch is happy to be associated with the Sports History Network, the sports headquarters of yesteryear, found at sportshistorynetwork.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.